uh, great aunt who lived in the Bronx, and she tells the story that one of her neighbors, I think, again, it's an urban legend, but one of her neighbors, married couple in their 70s, 80s, perhaps, and they had a cat, and the wife just loved the cat so much. It was kind of obnoxious to the husband how much the wife loved the cat, how much the wife doted on the cat, etc. One day, the wife went out of town. The husband took the cat, put it in a bag, put bricks in the bag, chucked it in the Hudson. Problem solved. The wife gets back and wants to know where the cat is. The husband says, the cat, I don't know where the cat is. Hey, I ran away. And the husband feigns madness, starts running around and scampering, puts up posters everywhere, and he takes out an ad in the paper, a $500 reward if you find the cat. Of course, nobody finds the cat, and his wife is distraught. So the next week he says, to show you how much I love you, I will put a $5,000 reward in the paper for the cat. And when he turns it in, the, the copy editor says, that's, nobody would pay $5,000 for a cat. I mean, you can't be that generous. And he says, when you know what I know, you can be this generous. <laughs> when you know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know, <laughs> you can be this bold. It's pretty straightforward. They, they don't fear dying in the fire. They don't understand what's going to happen in the fire. We made that clear last time we looked at this passage. They don't know the Lord's going to deliver them. They speak about their deliverance in the fire in a very conditional sense. If the Lord delivers us from the fire, great. <laughs> if not, King Nebuchadnezzar, we're still not worshiping. <laughs> the fire is not going to be a deterrent. Our death isn't going to be a deterrent. But then what happens is really a remarkable picture of the way the Lord works. This morning I used the phrase typical Yahweh and I talked about how typical Yahweh, it's typical of him to do these great reversals, to take the poor and to, to raise them up, to take the rich and break them down, to take the, the lame and make them walk and to take those who run and bring them to their knees. I mean, that is typically the way God works through the, the judges, through the good kings and the bad kings over and over and over again, choosing even Mary for the, the incarnation. I mean, this is typically the way he works. But there's another component of that. It's not just typically that he does reversals. It's typically that he saves in this fashion. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a front row seat. And I mean literally a front row seat to this. I mean, he's seeing things unfold here that nobody else is seeing. He's in the front row of the idol worship. He's in the front row of the trial of these three gentlemen that they cut off and say, you know, you don't need to bring the orchestra back. We're not bowing. And he's in the front row here at the fiery furnace, as close as he could get without being burned. So I want to pull out what Nebuchadnezzar saw with this outline tonight. I want to give you Nebuchadnezzar's four spiritual laws. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's four spiritual laws. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is an astute observer of this thing, isn't he? He is watching, he is analyzing. He's the king of the most powerful empire in the world at this point. He is in charge and he's also engaged. He's not some distant, detached king here. He's not running this thing on autopilot like so many of the Israelite kings. He is thoroughly engaged in this. In contrast with those around him, those so-called dream interpreters that can't do anything, I mean, they're just spectators in the way. The men who are doing his orders, I, I mean, you see the point that even the, there's, the people aren't being destroyed in the fire and he's the one that speaks up. He's the one that sees this. I mean, he is definitely the one who's in charge and he's the one who begins this whole process. He's the one that ends this whole chapter. He's not converted at this point. We'll see his conversion next week, Lord willing, in chapter four. Not, next, not Lord willing as in maybe he'll get converted, but maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll get there, Lord willing. Nebuchadnezzar is an astute observer of this thing. And so let's pull out what he sees. 
first of his spiritual law. He understands wrath. Hell is real and hell is deserved. And I hope you understand that point too. Nebuchadnezzar has no problem throwing these people in the fire because you have to grasp his worldview right now. He is the emperor. He is in charge. This is a world where there was no separation of church and state. The idea of emperor also being a god was not incongruent to their, to their thinking. That would be a typical way the emperors in that part of the world thought in that time period. If you're, if you're the emperor, you probably are a god and you probably are worthy of worship. And so it's not a huge leap to go from you're supposed to worship me to if you don't worship me, there's judgment. And it's eternal judgment and it's fiery judgment. I mean, that is the right punishment for that crime. Hell is real, hell is deserved. This is taught all over the Bible, and I hope you understand it. I hope you uh, understand the doctrine of eternal suffering, eternal damnation as described in the scripture. Hebrews 6, verse 2, describes the doctrine of hell as one of the elementary doctrines of the faith. Where Paul says uh, that we need to move on from the elementary doctrines. I would love to go on to the the meat of the faith, the more mature doctrines, but he says, I hope you understand the elementary teaching of the faith. Repentance from dead works baptism and the reality of hell, the laying on of hands, that there should be elders leading the church, that hell is real, that baptism should be to believers and that repentance is part of salvation. That's what Paul rattles off as the elementary doctrines of the faith. And I think that most evangelicals today have a good understanding of all of those, although hell is certainly the least favored of those elementary doctrines for obvious reasons. I mean, I don't think there was ever a generation that celebrated the doctrine of hell or ever an era of human history where hell was, you know, often preached upon doctrine. It is a discouraging doctrine, but there's the, because we have people that we know and that we, that we love that reject Christ. Nevertheless, it is a central and foundational element of the scriptures, an elementary doctrine of the faith. I mean, Jesus says this in Matthew 25. The fate of the wicked, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 25, is eternal judgment. Or Mark 3, verse 29, Jesus said, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus establishes the reality of eternal judgment. He calls it the fires of Gehenna, of hell. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Paul says that eternal judgment is the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of his glorious might. That there are those who are cast out of the presence of God and they are cast into eternal destruction. Eternal destruction means that it is destruction and it goes on forever. It is never completed. Ryan talked about this last Sunday night here in the evening service when we talked about the end of the Isaiah 66, the idea that the worm never dies out. It's a destruction that never ends. It's a weird twist on the word destruction. Because normally when something is destroyed, it's over. It's what's usually called a punctiliar verb. It happens that something's destroyed at a point in time. It's not perpetually destroyed, except when it comes to the doctrine of hell. There's a perpetual suffering. Eternal is how Paul calls it. And of course, it's suffering. Jesus says it's better to cut off your own hand or gouge out your own eye than to be thrown into eternal fiery judgment. That's Matthew 18, verse 8. So just think about the contrast that's there. It is better to, to su- I think that you can't do anything more painful than that to yourself. You know, you, you pinprick your, your thumb or you hit your thumb with a hammer and you, you yell. Jesus says it's better to gouge out your own eye than to experience hell. And of course, hell is eternal. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus describes 
God sending people there by saying, depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's why it's right to see fire as illustrative of hell. Jesus refers to it as fire there in Matthew 25, 41. It's referred to fire at the end of the book of Revelation. It's referred to as, as suffering and, and torment. In fact, Jude 1, verse 7 says that the fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah is given to us to teach us about hell. And that fire came down and it consumed. It was sent from God and it consumed people for their Im immorality. And of course, there's a flip side of that in Jude 1.7. Not only did, did the fire destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lord knew how to rescue Lot and his faithful ones. Revelation 20 takes you to the end of the scriptures. There the books are opened. Anybody whose name is not found in the book of life and whose name is found in the book of sin. In other words, if you sinned and your name is not in the book of life, then you are thrown into the lake of fire, it's called there. John says, Revelation 20, verse 15, this is the second death, this lake of fire. The first death being your physical death. The second death lasts forever. It is in the lake of fire. It is suffering. It's designed for the devil and his angels, but those who commit iniquity will be sent there. Now, I'm not implying that Nebuchadnezzar knows all that. But I am implying this, that Nebuchadnezzar has a right association in his mind with the refusal to worship God equating to fiery destruction. The problem with Nebuchadnezzar's theology here is not one of hell, it's one of deity. Nebuchadnezzar has himself in the throne as God. This is why he has his people thrown in the fiery furnace. You won't worship me, you deserve hell. So it's not that in Nebuchadnezzar's mind he's dealing with the wrong punishment here. He's got the right punishment, he's just got the wrong God. In his mind, he's on the throne. But appreciate this for a second. The fiery furnace is not as outlandish as it sounds. Nebuchadnezzar just looks in the mirror and he thinks he's looking at God. Nevertheless, he understands that hell is real and hell is deserved. Second spiritual law, salvation. God has the power to save. God has the power to save. God knows how to rescue his people. This is what Nebuchadnezzar hadn't seen coming. Here's the plot twist. The real God shows up. And this is what God does. God is a savior by nature. He's always been saving people. Adam and Eve sin, God covers them. He reaches out to them. God covers them in their nakedness. God comes to Noah and saves Noah and his family. God preaches the gospel in the world for 120 years before he floods it because he wants people to hear. He has a desire to save those who respond in faith. Before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, he rescues Lot and he establishes with Abraham. If there's, if there's righteous people in the city, there's 50 righteous, I won't destroy it. There's 10 righteous, I won't destroy it. There's a handful of righteous, I'll rescue them. That's what God does. He rescues. He saves Lot, he saves Lot's daughters. In fact, when he leads Israel out of, the, out of Egypt across the Red Sea, he first reveals himself to them, Exodus 14, verse 13. Fear not and stand firm, Moses says, because Yahweh has worked salvation. The declaration to the Israelites as they're surrounded by the Red Sea, caving in on them is that you shouldn't panic because God is a savior. That's what he tells them. Don't panic about the Egyptian army. Don't panic about Pharaoh. Don't panic about the ocean behind us. Don't panic about the angel of death. Don't panic about those things because God is a savior, Moses says. He can, in the language is, he can work salvation. 
And by the way, the Red Sea crossing is nothing compared to the new covenant we have in Christ. Hebrews 2, what is it? Hebrews 2 verse 3 describes our salvation in Christ as the great salvation. It eclipses any salvation before it. It eclipses the Red Sea crossing. It eclipses the the Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn and God knowing how to save his people from that. It eclipses the great flood because Jesus saves his people. Isaiah 49 verse six, Yahweh says, is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the people of Israel? I will make you a light to the nations. It's part of the verse most of us know. God says, it's too small for me just to bring Israel back to the promised land. I got, I got a bigger thing in mind. I've already brought Israel to the promised land once. I can do it a second time too. That's not my goal. In fact, we know he's gonna do it a third time in the future. God says, it's too small of a thing just to bring Israel back. I got a bigger agenda. My bigger agenda is to bring them back so that the Savior can come so they can be a light to the nations. In the end of the verse, Isaiah 49, verse six, so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God's not even content being a savior confined to Israel. He wants the light of salvation to radiate around the world. But it's not just a general light of salvation. It's God wants to save people personally. Think of the story with Zacchaeus. Out of the tree, sins forgiven. Behold, Lord, Zacchaeus says, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anything, I, I want to repay it back fourfold. There goes the other half. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this household because the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's what it looks like for salvation to go to the ends of the earth. People like Zacchaeus getting saved. And that's what's prefigured all the way back here in Daniel chapter three. How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get saved? Well, they got saved through faith by God. Think of the object of their faith. What did they place their faith in? They placed their faith in God, in Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the savior of Israel. They knew who the real God was. That's why they were not impressed by the the statue. And remember, the statue was even revealed by God in a dream through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. The statue was God's idea. Not that he should build it and people should worship it. I mean, that's idolatry and that's sinful. But the revelation of the statue to Nebuchadnezzar happened through Daniel. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't put their faith in that even. They didn't put their faith in prophecy. They didn't put their faith in the knowledge of the future. They put their faith in the person of Yahweh. What kind of faith did they have? What kind of faith is saving faith? It's not lukewarm faith. It's not fair weather faith. (laughs) They didn't take the temperature here that day and see if it's worth standing up before Nebuchadnezzar and saying, no, we're not going to worship. It didn't matter what kind of mood Nebuchadnezzar was in. They didn't want to wait for a more politically opportune moment to go toe-to-toe with the emperor. They had a bold faith. You could call it fireproof faith. I'll call it fireproof faith. This is a bold faith. And they didn't acquire this faith at the moment they came face-to-face with the idol. They had this faith back in Israel as they were taken out of Israel as boys. They had this faith when they were in custody back in chapter one. I don't know if jail is the right term, but as they were in custody and they were being fed their diet, they had this faith back then. They were on fire back then. That's why they weren't afraid of this fire in chapter three. They were burning with the fire of their faith back in chapter one. That's kind of faith that's bold, that's un wavering. They're fire on the inside and so they weren't afraid of fire on the outside. And they had a quality to their faith. Their faith was 
was absolute. It's not just was it bold, but their salvation here becomes absolute, complete salvation. Look at verse 27 again. What stands out when they come out of the fire is that the fire hadn't any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads wasn't even singed. I can't put a log into my fireplace, which I tried to do this afternoon before coming to church right now. I can't put a log into my fireplace without the car then smelling like smoke when I get into it. These dudes were in a fire that was so hot it burned to death the people that threw them in and they get out and they don't smell like smoke. The smoke was afraid of them. You put a log, you roast a marshmallow, the smoke comes to you. It doesn't matter which side of the campfire you stand on, the smoke will find you. (laughs) These guys didn't have that problem. The smoke went away from them. Smoke wanted nothing to do with them. The fire wanted nothing to do with them. The fire had no authority over them. They didn't fall under the fire's jurisdiction. (laughs) This case should be raised in a different courtroom. Because of their faith, they are exempt from the fires of hell. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't understand this scene as illustrative of hell when it happens. They didn't know they were going to be saved. But it's it's not too much for us to look back at this and see a pretty clear-cut picture here. (laughs) Why didn't they get burned? Is it because God doesn't want more martyrs and the Babylon's watch because he was going to save Nebuchadnezzar next? I doubt it. Who knows what God's doing 10,000 things, most of which aren't described. But it's more likely this passage serves to give you a picture of salvation from hell. Where the fires of hell don't even have any authority on the people that have the saving faith in God. The bold fireproof faith means that the fires of hell, though the fires of hell are just, that's the first law, the fires of hell are just and deserved. If you have faith, you are exempt from them. Perhaps you remember last year the story in the news of the state senator in Arizona who was driving out, I forget, like, but the whatever the lake is on the west side of Arizona, that was where his district was. He was driving back from the capital, going like 115 miles an hour in his car, gets pulled over, and he, he tells the trooper, you can't give me a ticket because the state Senate is in session, and Arizona law says that when the state Senate is in session, senators are exempt from, from citations and arrest, which apparently the law does say. And so the state trooper said, you're right. I can't give you a ticket. Let's him go. But you know what the state trooper can do is release the recording of that for everybody to make fun of the guy. <laughs> he does have the power, to, but he doesn't have the power to write him a ticket. <laughs> That's what you're like when it comes to the fires of hell. You deserve them, certainly. You absolutely deserve them. You deserved to be punished in hell for your unbelief and for your sin. Nevertheless, the fires of hell do not have authority over you. They cannot haul you in. They cannot hold you to account for your sin and your lawless deeds. Although you deserve it, they have no authority over you because you're exempt from their jurisdiction. For the laws of fire, by the way, which is called pyrology, the study of fire, doesn't apply to you. Or to come at it backwards. If your faith is genuine, it's not destructible by fire. I mean, you can look at this either way. If you have genuine faith, the fire has no authority over you. But go about it the other way. If genuine faith cannot be lost, if you cannot lose your salvation, then clearly you wouldn't be subject to the torments of hell. Because could you endure that kind of persecution? Could you endure that kind of suffering without renouncing your faith? No. And so whether you come at it forward or backwards, your faith, if it is genuine faith, makes you secure in your salvation and immune to hell. That's bold faith. 
That's why their salvation is secure. Pastor Timothy Fleming at a church down in Atlanta, Georgia, wrote a little poem about the scene right here that I want to read to you. He actually wrapped it at his church, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Listen, King, I've got something for you to hear. I want to put a bug in your ear. You brought us to this town. That doesn't matter. I'm not bowing down. For though you changed my name, our testimony is still the same. You went ahead and offered us meat, but you see we didn't eat. You can do whatever you please. We're not bowing on our knees. Your God's got eyes that don't see. Ours God, our God has eyes that see both you and me. Your God's got ears and can't hear. Our God has a listening ear. Your God is man-made. Our God made man. That doesn't rhyme, but I love it anyway. Your God's a stationary stone. Our God is a rolling stone. Your God is a mighty God, but our God is the almighty God. Your God is a rock hewn with human hands. Our God is a rock in a weary land. That is the God that saves, where the fire has no authority over you. And that's why you don't bow. That's why you don't compromise. Because what can man do to you? Third spiritual law from Nebuchadnezzar here. There's a mediator. We've seen the truth of wrath, of salvation. Third, truth of a mediator. That God saves through himself. God saves through a mediator. Now, I think we know this, but I want to try to impress upon you the importance of understanding this as it relates to the Trinity, as it relates to the difference between the Father and the Son. The Father, all three members of the Trinity are spirit. You cannot touch them. You cannot see them. They are spirit. Okay, you can't behold God and live, Moses says. God himself declares that. Even the, the images that we, you see of people seeing God from Elijah to, to Moses they're so, and Isaiah, they're so dim, they're so obscured that it's obvious they're not beholding the majesty of God. So if God is spirit and you cannot lay eyes on him, how does God act in the world? Well, he creates the world by speaking, by using words. I mean, God is pure action. He is pure action. He, he only acts all the time. So he creates by speaking words, by using words, and the words have power to create because God is pure action. But now as God interacts with his creation, he spoke his creation into existence. Now as he interacts with his creation, how does he interact? Can he interact directly with them? And the answer is, of course, God can do anything, but the answer is it does not appear that he chooses to act directly with his creation for the most part. Instead, God always interacts with his creation through mediated means. Now, the mediated means don't obscure him. They mediate him. They make him accessible. Because how, I mean, how could you endure that? You cannot drink from a fire hose. It's not just an expression. You can't do it. How do you interact with God unless his action, his light, his power is mediated to you? And so, you see this throughout the scripture. Once Adam and Eve sin, they no longer walk with God. In order for them to approach God, there has to be a covering, there has to be a sacrifice. And then it leads to this promise of sacrifices throughout the Bible. The Lord feeds his people in the wilderness, not directly, but by giving them food, by guiding them by fire and smoke. God himself doesn't guide them. He guides them through fire and smoke. He feeds his people by manna. He brings water, not himself. He brings water out of a rock. 
He uses judges this way also. He delivers Israel in the books of the judges by raising up judges. The judges are his mediated communication. He rebukes Israel in the days of the kings through the prophets. Then there's a person speaking God's word. You understand God, not because he talks to you, but you understand God because you open up your Bible and you can read his word. That's how he communicates to you. So this is all ways that God mediates his authority to us. But he's okay using a donkey. He's okay using a lion. He's okay using prophets. He's okay using judges. He's okay using Samson's and David's. And he uses all kinds of people. Strong, weak, everybody. He can speak and direct people in the world through them. But when it comes to salvation, he doesn't use a a non-God mediator. (laughs) He doesn't use the prophets to save his people in a real sense. Even Samson, who is called savior of Israel, he was introduced through the appearance of the angel of the Lord who received worship as if he was God without striking Manoah and his wife dead. So it seems pretty clear that in that instance, this was some appearance of God in angelic form. And this is typically how God saves. Even Abraham has an, has an encounter, not just with any priest, but with Melchizedek, elevated above other priests. It's typical for God to save through himself. It still requires a mediator though, for all the reasons I said earlier. It still requires a mediator for you to interact with God or or have any kind of relationship with him or experience from him or learn from him. And God can use prophets and he can use lions and he can use his, his word, he can use all kinds of things. But when it comes to salvation, there's only one mediator he uses. It is himself. So how can God himself, how can God be a mediator between God and man? That doesn't make any sense. And that's where you have to have a concept of the Trinity, where the son becomes the mediator between the Godhead and mankind. The Lord can lead his people in the wilderness by smoke and fire, but Jesus is the true light. The Lord can give his people drink in the wilderness from the rock, but Jesus is the water of life and he is the true rock. The Lord can feed his people in the wilderness through manna, but Jesus is the bread of life. The Lord can guide his people in the wilderness however he wants to, but Jesus is the good shepherd. When it comes to salvation, Jesus is the only mediator. This is why Manoah has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. This is why Joshua has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. Prophets come to preach, angels come to serve, the word comes to direct, but God himself comes to save. That's the significance of the incarnation. It's spelled out for you in Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it, God says. For how would my name be profaned? And shall I share my glory with another? God says, I will not give my glory with another. If God saved his people through some other mediator, his glory would be shared. In a sense, God's fine sharing his glory with the prophets. He's fine sharing his glory with angels who are ministering spirits especially with the prophets because they usually mess things up. They get all the blame. But when it comes to salvation, there's no divided glory. There's no divided action. There is only the Trinity through the mediator. And that's why when you turn back to Daniel 3, there's a fourth person in the fire. Well, if you're following with me, this becomes an image of God with the ability to save people from hell. The hell is deserved that God will save people from hell. Who would he use to save people from hell if this is supposed to teach us about that? He's not gonna use an angel, some random angel pulled off the line. He's not gonna even send Gabriel for this. This will be himself. 
This is before the incarnation. So Christ has not been born. Christ has not taken on a human nature. But even Nebuchadnezzar notices something's not right. <laughs> he wants a head count. Verse 23. Wait, how many again? <laughs> I know it was a while ago we had this show done. How many did win the three? Okay. <laughs> and that guy doesn't look right. Looks like a son of the gods. That's a phrase that's used occasionally in the Bible to describe angels, but not by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what he's looking at. He commands Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out. The fourth person does not come out. He returns back to glory. God will not share his saving glory with anyone else. Nebuchadnezzar already has enough here to point you to the gospel. You deserve hell. God has the power to save, but he will only save in one way, and that way is through the person of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, necessity. The necessity for salvation. You've seen that you need salvation because your wrath is deserved. You've seen that God makes salvation available because he's a savior by nature. You've seen that the way he makes it available is through a mediator. And now you see the necessity of salvation. This is how Nebuchadnezzar wraps this up. Verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered, I know he calls it an angel there, but don't get your theology from Nebuchadnezzar yet. <laughs> who delivered his servants who trusted him, set aside the king's commands. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree, any nation, people, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their house is laid in ruins. I mean, this gets back to the first point, that wrath is deserved. Nebuchadnezzar is operating under that world. He's in that concept. If you rebel against God, you deserve destruction. You deserve judgment. He's got that grid. And so now he's transferring it. I don't think he's ready to dethrone himself yet. He'll be dethroned next week. <laughs> but for now, he's ready to at least have a partner in the mirror. <laughs> when he looks at the picture of God, remember before he was looking in the mirror, sees himself. Now he's ready to see another God also in the mirror. And that God he sees in the mirror is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, he's wrong on this. God will not share his glory with another, and, and Nebuchadnezzar will learn that lesson next week when he will be humiliated by God. I mean, don't try to be a co-regent with God. <laughs> but that's for next week. For now, though, Nebuchadnezzar is aware that there is no other God in all of the world that saves like this. And so this is the decree. Earlier, he decreed everybody had to bow before him or be torn limb from limb. He uses the same language as he did earlier in chapter three. If you don't bow before a statue, you, this happens to you. Now, if you, don't, if you speak anything negative against Yahweh, you will be torn limb from limb. Your house laid in ruins for there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. That is the exhaustive, exclusive statement at the end. There is no other God who can do this. If there's no other God that can do this, what hope is there for salvation unless you come to Christ? This is Hebrews 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If people who didn't escape, who neglected the teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament, what do you think is going to happen to you if you reject the teaching of Christ? This becomes the point of the warning passages in Hebrews. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no other way for you to be saved. It's impossible for those who've once tasted the heavenly gift participated in some trivial way with the Holy Spirit to reject the Holy Spirit and then be brought back again to repentance to reject Jesus Christ and come back again to repentance because can water fall on the same land again and, and bring it to, it's barren. Nothing's gonna grow. In other words, if you reject Jesus Christ, there's no savior number two behind door number two. 
You say, I believe in Yahweh. I believe in the God of the Old Testament. I believe in the God of Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I just don't believe in Jesus Christ. I'm waiting for the next savior. Hey, there's no other savior. Because God, the triune God only saves through himself, through his son, Jesus Christ. If you reject that, you reject this God's salvation. There is no other God that can save. There is no other God that can forgive sins. And in a very particular way right here, there is no other God that can spare you from fire. No other way to be spared from the fires of hell except through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Exodus 34, 14. You shall worship no other God, Moses says, because our Lord, Yahweh, is his name. His name is Jealous, and he is a jealous God. Acts 4, verse 12. There's salvation under the banner of heaven under no other name. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There's just no other possibility for salvation except through this God. And even Nebuchadnezzar understands that. Even a hard-hearted, arrogant, calloused heart, exalted in his own mind, Nebuchadnezzar understands that there is no other God. And he says, notice the phrase, other nation, other languages. Babylon was a melting pot here. They had shuffled people in from Africa, from modern day Africa, Asia, the Middle East, even parts of, of Europe, parts of the future Greek empire were swept into Babylon. They're all in his courts. He sees all the religions of the world here and he sizes them all up. Remember, he's an engaged observer. We talked about that at the beginning. He's the engaged observer. He's rightly assessing all these religions and he looks at them and he says, nothing is like this God. Nothing. So you cross Yahweh at your own peril, Nebuchadnezzar says. It's sobering, though, to realize that you can say that without converting to, to God. I mean, that's the, the incredible thing about Nebuchadnezzar. He says that. Nobody can be saved apart from Yahweh, but he himself has not given his heart to Yahweh. It's almost as if he thinks declaring it gets him off the hook. Like if I say out loud, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, that means that I will be saved because I said you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Very different than you actually putting your faith in Jesus. Very different than you actually getting down off the throne of your own life. Nebuchadnezzar would do well to study the laws that he himself describes for us in this passage. Because if he did, he would realize that people deserve sin, even he that God will save sinners, even he. That he does so through a mediator. Through someone who will come to earth. God himself to bring us salvation. And there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Lord, we're thankful that you have laid out a picture of your salvation through this fiery ordeal. I pray for the hearts of those who are here tonight and ask that you would help us have fireproof faith. That you would give us faith that the fire has no jurisdiction over, that the fire cannot touch. That you would give us faith that is bold, uncompromising, is not fair weather, is not try to stand in the direction the world is, is blowing or the culture is directing, but faith that is countercultural because it's rooted in your word, which comes from the rock of ages. Give us that kind of bold faith. I pray for people here tonight, if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in you, I pray tonight they would realize the, their need for a savior. I pray tonight they would realize that not only do they need a savior, but they need you. You are the only savior. 
We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, that although you came in the fiery furnace here, that's not sufficient to save us. You come again, born in Bethlehem with a human nature, human flesh, human mother, leading a sinless human life. It's on that cross that you take our sin. You bear the judgment that we deserve. We deserve to suffer. We deserve to die. We deserve the fires of hell. And you take that on yourself. Lord, we can't explain why you would do that for us except for your own love. So we're grateful that you're a savior by nature, that your nature in that sense compels you to send your son who will die for us, who will rise from the grave three days later without the smell of fire anywhere on him, radiant in light, confused with an angel, and now exalted in heaven. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.